Letter 9. Your sort don't do dossing, so you won't have no clue. The thing about dossing is, no one needs paying. You get it all for free, rain or shine. Trouble is, though, you end up looking like something only foul words can say. As I pledged my poor lost soul to eternal hellfire, if I say one more foul word as long as I live, you will forget if I leave out what I look like to your imagination. This won't give your imagination much bother, because what I looked like was the dregs anyone who dosses over winter looks like. It was only ever cold winds down every street I skulked in. It got so freezing I cracked in the end. I went to see about signing on for benefits, only I never had no national insurance number. The social took it off me. So I couldn't prove how I was Marley Godwin. I couldn't even make the bloke at the counter believe I used to be Jenny whatever. Even when I said Jenny's national insurance number by heart, he didn't believe me. I tried to make the bloke see I was back from the dead. I tried to make him see how I found out I'm really Marley Godwin. Would he listen? No. All I got from him was dull looks. I will confess. That bloke's dull looks drove me to stomp out the benefits office in a dark huff, which is the best mood to be in when the wind blows Baltic. What kept me nearly sane was Scarly on free Wi-Fi. We was chatting in the clouds by then. Only Scarly was saying she couldn't be hurried. She was saying how she was so flabbergasted and what have you. What that means is a feeling you get when you need more time to get used to having a twin you never known you had. Fair enough. I bides my time. I kips on stairwells. I queues at charities where the nameless homeless get mugs of soup. Other times, I lived the high life in empty houses. There's a good few in Cambridge. Always good for clean loos, and the cupboards are well stocked. Only you can't keep in second homes for too long before the nosy neighbours pop round to give you a scare. Because of the cold winds, I will give Cambridge four and a half stars. If you need to doss there over winter, you could do a lot worse. Especially around Christmas time, with all the good cheer and whatnot. It was no problem thieving whatever I needed. I could even blag the Polish bloke down the sports centre to let me in without a ticket. The Pole was a thoroughly good sort. Thanks to him, I could wash regular. There was even toiletries in the changing rooms for me to nick. The day I met my sister, I went there for a wash and blow dry. I needed to make myself nicely beautified. Trouble is, there weren't no loose change lying about, so I didn't get to use the hair dryers. What Scarly never knew was, I was nothing but scum of the earth. I told her on social media I was living on Jesus Green. Gospel truth. Only she's imagining how I was sorted in splendid dwellings there. Her messages goes, Hark at you with your posh abodes. Then, 
After ages, after she was good and ready to come out and meet me for real, Scarly says her whim is we should meet in the church round the corner from my posh abodes. In those days, me and the Almighty weren't so pally as we are now. I told you some of his miracles, what already happened, like what it was like being brought back from the dead. In my own good time, I shall tell you about even more miracles which happen next. Then you will truly believe. Right now, all you need to know is, one January morning, when it was bleak in winter, me and Scarly come face to face on the pavement outside All Saints Church. Jesus Lane. Can I tell you something you won't never imagine? I can't imagine it neither, even now, so you won't begin to credit what I say. But I shall tell you anyways, cause it's gospel. When you see your twin sister at last, for the first time ever, you turn into a yowling wreck. There we was, me and Scarly both, yowling our eyes out. The traffic kept going, the wind blew her hair this way and that. Mine would have blown as well, only mine was too wet to blow. And we yowled like angry kids. Cause I can't properly cry never again. Over Scarly's shoulder, I seen the tall bloke standing across the road, clear as day. He was gawping. Just another plunker, taking a moment to enjoy the spectacle of two twins in a state, I thought to myself. If only. Then the tall bloke, I will call him the beanstalk, clocks me clocking him. By then he's already got his arm trussed up in a sling. I shake Scarly by the shoulders. Look there, I say. When I looks back, he's vanished. Scarly was still yowling. She was coming round. Her eyeliner was smudging down her cheeks. I knew my eyeliner weren't smudging nowhere cause there weren't no tears in my eyes. I am dry as sticks. And besides, what with no cosmetics to thieve down the sports center, I didn't even have no eyeliner on my face. Before we even said hello or how's tricks, do you know the first thing Scarly said was? She struggled to get it out. But what she said between gulps of laughing was, If you could do one thing all over again, what would it be? That was my sister in a nutshell. Always thinking. She planned to ask me this, no doubt. It was her way of having fun and games. She even had her clever clogs answer at the ready, I'll wager ready cash. Only, Scarly never got to say no clever clogs answer cause she got flummoxed by what I said next to her about Cambridge. What I answered was, If you was me, you would have done your dossing in Cambridge years ago. Less stress, better services, better class of scumbags. I've been kicking myself for not thinking it sooner. Not that I would think Cambridge is good to doss in out of thin air. That is all down to you, I said. I heard Brighton is good as well. Scarly was looking at me strange. It was like she forgot her English. So she could pick out my words more easy, I said it all over again, slower and louder, but with less words. I goes, 
if you need somewhere to doss, don't go dossing down London Way. That was my big mistake. I never knew places like Cambridge exist. You could tell the penny dropped by the way she tilts her head and says, What? You been sleeping rough? I goes, Nah, I been sleeping fine, thanks. This tickled us hard. We both understood then how we couldn't understand nothing each other said. Everything was like gobbledygook. She says how my hair looks comely. So I ruffles and says how sorry I am, but the blow dryers down the sports center was all out of order. Both of us was laughing and bustling and shaking our heads and looking away and looking back with our eyes, still giggling. The next thing we knew we was hugging again, even if hugging is unhygienic. It popped into my head to ask how old I was. Scarly looked at me funny again. Slowly, with deep breathing, so she understands, I goes, I don't know what day I'm born. I tells her how the social disappeared me off the face of the earth. When Scarly said our birthday was the 29th of March, 1989, we fell into our arms again, this time with much more spluttering and yowling. In all those years we was apart, something kept us glued back together. I can say now, without doubt, it was the workings of the Almighty in heaven. Me and Scarly was getting on like the whole of Cambridge on fire. We ain't even said hello yet. After we hug too much, she puts her arm through mine and walks me through the doors of the church. I slept in porticos before, up against wooden doors. I even slept in graveyards. But in all my years, I never yet visited inside a holy place of worship. It was so dark and quiet, every sound did echoes. There was nobody home. Me and Scarly took a pew. We sat in the back row. All we'd done was hold hands and stare at the rainbows in the windows. Then Scarly took tissues out of her bag. She was wiping her eyes. I got hold of her tissues and helped her wipe the smudging away. For the longest time, we let the quiet say everything. Deep down, I was feeling shamed about the drab kit I had on. It was all I could manage to thieve from a charity shop. My hair was still wet. I didn't have no eyeliner on. And every second we sat there, my one and only desperate question was clanging like bells in my head. Nothing was said, though. Because being in a church, sat next to my sister, was the best bit of my life so far. Then she whispers in my ears. She's whispering about a bloke called William Morris and how brilliant his church art is. I tells her I never heard of this William Morris. I did know a Morris William, though. He was a tranny from up north, but all he could paint was his nails. Scarly put her fingers to her lips because I was talking too loud. She whispers how she was thinking of getting her front room curtains done in William Morris patterns. I must have given her some kind of gape then, because there was no other time in my whole life I ever thought about what curtains look like. I kept my mouth shut, though. Still whizzing round my brain was the one and only desperate question I didn't dare ask yet. 
You might imagine there was never a time I couldn't not think of what to say next. But this was that time. I was flummoxed. I never sat in a church before. I was just about to speak up, then the next thing happened. I should have been used to it by then, to the little pranks the Almighty plays. This time it was a bloke in priestly frocks he sent our way. The bloke starts peering at us. He scuffles down the aisle, full tilt, swishing this way and that. As he gets near, he slows up. All we'd done was stare at him with our sublime smiles. It was comical how that stopped the bloke of God dead in his tracks. It was like he and the Holy Ghost couldn't credit what was plain for their eyes to behold. I learned, there and then, that Scarley was nothing if not full of bonkers schemes. She said how sorry she was, but would the Reverend Father be good enough to take our snap together? There's a good chap. She got a thing out that weren't even a mobile phone. It was just a thing. The bloke in priestly frocks got flustery. He took the thing off Scarly without knowing which end to look through. After he points it at us, the thing clicks and makes grinding noises. Believe it or not, after two ticks, a handy bit of card pops out the front. A few minutes later, the card has a real snap on it. It looked just like us, smiling. Fucking scientists! I mean to say, scientists, what will they think of next? Then Scarly says how grateful we was, and how we should love to stop and chat with the bloke of the cloth, but she and me had much to do, so we would be saying our cheerios and God blesses. There was lots of frolicking like this. When the muse strikes, I like to say things the way Scarly used to, so I can tell my side of the story with all the finer touches. Not only that, her clever wordiness is always brilliant to annoy annoying people with. Once we was outside All Saints' front door, we laughed and cheered. Each time we looked at the snap of us on the bit of card, smiling so sweetly, we howled. I might have asked my one and only desperate question right then and there. I should have, cause we was ready for anything. Instead though, I pointed my fingers across the road and said, Here, Scarly, what's that beanstalk with the arm gawping at? Do you know him? Maybe I shouldn't point, cause it's rude. Plus, the beanstalk bloke looks like he's got a pair of legs that's got stretched too far in a wrestling bout. Nimble as mice, though. When Scarly whipped round, he was already out of sight. She must have spotted something well out of order, though, cause I could see my sister was not one happy bunny no more. Within a few days of the surprise intervention by Ralph Godwin, I found myself on speaking terms with his sister as well. Given the turn of events, Emilia told me that she needed to make contact, if only to correct the false impression her brother was too easily capable of giving. In the end, we'd have to say they corroborated one another, 
even though Ralph and Amelia were polarized in their approaches towards Marley. Ralph tended to be an apologist. Amelia was openly hostile. To give you the best of both worlds, I tried to combine their accounts. What they agreed from the beginning was that Marley's appearance plunged all of their lives into confusion. Let's go to the second half of January 2017. The family was invited for tea at Charlotte's new place in Cambridge. The purpose was to introduce Marley formally. Charlotte had only revealed her sister's existence to Jack and Agnes the day before. Ralph had warned Amelia that she was in for a shock, but he didn't elaborate. As soon as Charlotte opened the door, they greeted her warmly. Amelia complimented her on her new dress. The dress was too revealing in Amelia's view, but she didn't like to criticize. Jack and Agnes were taken aback, but said nothing either, because dressing provocatively was just the sort of whim Charlotte was capable of. Amelia wondered if Charlotte had managed to find any other bargains in the sales. Jack checked over her shoulder to see if they could be overheard. The hallway was empty. He wondered, in a stage whisper, whether meeting Marley over a cup of tea was entirely appropriate. The woman at the door was smiling now. She led them into the front room. It was apparent she was nervous. Her nervousness triggered an unconscious unease in Amelia. But she rationalized her feelings, telling herself that Charlotte hadn't been herself for years now. She felt compelled to ask if everything was all right. She wondered where Marley had got to. This caused the woman to burst out laughing. Emilia realized that her question had exposed what she was already beginning to suspect, that the woman in front of them was not Charlotte at all. As if in unison, Jack and Agnes froze. Only Ralph was able to produce a thin smile. The woman looked exactly like Charlotte, but there was nothing in the bawdy sound she was making that was familiar to any of them. Unable to contain her laughter, the woman collapsed on the sofa just as the real Charlotte stepped into the room. The shock was immediate and intense. Charlotte was wearing the same trim scarlet dress. The dress showed off their long legs and cleavage. Their hair had been done in the same way. Their necklaces and bracelets were the same. The expressions on the faces of each member of Charlotte's family became vacant as they looked back and forth between the twins. Even Ralph was amazed, he told me. On one side of the room was a woman who was laughing so much she'd lost her balance and was slipping from the sofa to the floor. To Amelia's embarrassment, her dress had ridden up her stockinged legs, revealing a white pair of pants. On the other side of the lounge, much the same woman was taking it all in with a tolerant and bemused sense of fun. Molly righted herself and said something like, Oh, fuck, I've got the hiccups now. Do you get them? Charlotte had decided to grace the scene with her sense of the theatrical. In what was a studied and casual gesture, she waved her hand in Marley's direction and said, It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to my one and only sister. It was obvious that Marley could be distinguished from Charlotte by her voice and behavior. 
There was no question that the woman on the floor looked uncannily like Charlotte. It was beyond dispute that she must be Charlotte's genetic double. Beyond that, though, Marley was nothing like Charlotte, and the Godwins knew it. This made the fact that the twins were wearing the same cheap costumes more galling. To Jack, it seemed a willful and calculated gesture done to make his family look like idiots. What the hell is the meaning of this? he demanded. It was one of a number of frustrated outbursts that would require tempering from Agnes. Ralph said that his mother tried to put her hand on her father's arm, but he shrugged it off. Amelia couldn't recall this level of tension between their parents, but did remember her mother saying, Not now, Jack. Marley was back on her feet again. She approached Jack with an outstretched hand. Ralph was sure she only meant to shake hands, but her approach seemed too rapid. Amelia thought she was about to witness an assault. When Jack refused to shake hands, Marley first curtsied, then bowed. Coming up from her bow, she explained that as a rule she didn't mix with royal personages. Referring to Jack as his gracefulness, she asked if he would permit her to wave at him. Standing just a few feet away, Marley waved like someone in a fawning crowd. In Amelia's memory, it was more like the woman was hopping around the way a boxer would, getting ready for a fight. Whether or not Marley's antics were meant in good humor, Ralph felt he ought to intervene. He laughed it off and reminded his parents that this was a special occasion. With half an eye on Charlotte, who was studying her nails, he made excuses for Marley. He said she was probably as nervous as they all were. His parents had gone pale. It was clear that Charlotte's sister was odd in the extreme. There was something wrong with her, and yet Charlotte still seemed oblivious. She invited her family to take a seat in the dining room. A small table had been set with fine crockery and silver. At this point, Charlotte and Ralph went to the kitchen to prepare tea, while Marley pretended that the Godwins were the ones who had been missing for so long. She fussed over them, insisting that they make themselves at home. This detail comes from Emilia. Her position was already closely aligned to her father's. She felt that Marley had deliberately set out to offend in whatever she did. What's more, she felt that her father was the intended target. If Jack was finding it intolerable, it seemed to Amelia that Marley's mission was to make the situation seem even worse. Jack and his wife could not have been prepared for such an encounter. I suppose there was very little they could do to disguise their horror. Jack in particular, I was told, found it impossible to believe that his brother and sister-in-law had kept from him the existence of a second child. Neither he nor Agnes could bring themselves to accept that Marley was related to them. While Charlotte poured the Darjeeling and offered jam tarts with clotted cream, Ralph tried to engage Marley in polite conversation. The scarlet dresses gave the occasion a surreal tinge. Soon Marley was telling them all how she'd been brought up in care. She said she always knew this was never her true fate. She'd hated her childhood. She was always running away. She'd been mostly absent from the school she went to. 
she confessed cheerfully that she'd been a petty criminal for most of her life. As the Godwins listened to all of this with growing dismay, Molly told them how she ran away to London when she was 16. With no money in her pockets and nowhere to live, she taught herself how to survive. She expressed pride in the way she'd pulled herself out of the gutter. She became prosperous, she said. Until very recently, she'd been in business with a Greek financier, but sadly their business empire had recently collapsed. After they'd gone their separate ways, Marley had ended up back on the streets again. It was a heavenly miracle, she told them, how she'd found her sister and would never have to be homeless again. You may well imagine Amelia trying to suppress the feeling that she'd been hit by a train. She tried not to judge Marley. She wanted to be neutral. But all she could do was hide behind what she called a veil of neutrality. In truth, she was outraged. Marley was physically like the Charlotte she loved, but her personality couldn't have been more different and unlovable. As they listened to Marley's story, Emilia tried in her desperation to convey telepathic messages to Charlotte. She badly wanted to know if Charlotte was in any kind of trouble. She wanted to know what Marley had done to her. Charlotte was too absorbed in the moment to notice Amelia's penetrating glances. That she could have allowed any of this to happen made Emilia suspect the worst. Within a quarter of an hour, Emilia was convinced that Charlotte's life had been overrun. She was being controlled by this creature who was Charlotte's double, but who didn't belong. Marley's language was not only untutored, it was repulsive. The woman seemed incapable of saying anything without peppering it with vulgarities. It was evident, though, that Charlotte accepted her sister unconditionally. Ralph thought that he detected in his cousin a malign pleasure at the shocking absence of social skills in Marley's manner. Charlotte seemed to be smiling to herself. When she caught Ralph staring at her, she shrugged her shoulders, as if to say, from now on, this was how things were going to be. At some point, Agnes dared to inquire politely whether Marley might avoid using quite so many unseemly words. Until then, the situation had been a ticking bomb. Now the bomb exploded. Charlotte didn't so much as spring to Marley's defense as launch an outright attack. Using her own brand of invective, calculated to demonstrate that the language people used must never be tempered by the narrow, miserly values of the well-off, Charlotte berated her family mercilessly. Emilia and Ralph were both stunned, but in different ways. When Marley pitched in with some mild encouragement, as well as a few choice words of her own, Emilia shouted at her to mind her own business. Ralph interjected that maybe this was Marley's business. That was the last straw. His son's words was enough to drive Jack out of his chair. He threw his jam tart to the floor. He told them he was fed up with all of this nonsense and stormed out. Agnes followed in gloomy silence. I wondered aloud whether the family might have been able to accept Molly more easily had she been more like Charlotte, not in appearance, but in upbringing. 
Emilia was shocked that I should even ask such a question. She demanded to know how I could believe this appalling situation they were in had anything to do with Marley's class. What had been obvious from the outset, she argued, was that Marley's arrival on the scene was always going to end in catastrophe. You would have been more nuanced, I think. We've had an opportunity to become less class-conscious in Austria. I see you reacting more like Ralph. He agreed that Marley's poor understanding of social norms was a hurdle for the family. It made a difference to the way they treated her. He didn't think he was personally prejudiced by it, though, and was quick to point out that whatever he and his family might have thought of Marley, it wouldn't have made a difference in the end. Even if they'd all fallen head over heels for her, he said, it wouldn't have changed anything. Thank you.